0: On September 6th, Stephen King tweeted, It's a happy day for me because Fairytale is published. It's a sad day because my good friend and amazingly talented colleague, Peter Straub, has passed away.
1: Working with him was one of the great joys of my life. Peter Straub was a best-selling horror novelist whose book Ghost Story was adapted into a feature film starring Fred Astaire in 1981. Straub published 17 novels, including two with Stephen King. He also published short stories and poems. Straub received many literary honors, such as the Bram Stoker Award, World Fantasy Award, and International Horror Guild Award. Straub was 79 years old.
0: If you've seen any of the online condolences posted by authors, then you know just how well-loved he was.
1: Neil Gaiman tweeted, one of the best writers I've read, one of the best friends I've known, always kind, funny, irascible, brilliant. Welcome to Two Old Parts Talk Sci Fi. I'm David Clink.
0: And I'm Troy Harkin. We are celebrating the 75th birthday of Stephen King with Bev Vincent's wonderful new book from Epic Inc. Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life, and influences. With this appearance, Bev joins the Three Timers Club, if you will, the Hat Trick Union. Bev was our season one, episode seven podcast guest on The Dead Zone, and our season two, episode four podcast on on writing
1: bev is also the author of the dark tower companion the road to the dark tower and the stephen king illustrated companion in 2018 he co-edited the anthology flight or fright with stephen king he is the author of the ogilvy affair and co-author of dissonant harmonies His short fiction has appeared in places such as Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Borderlands 5, Ice Cold, and The Blue Religion. Welcome back to the show, Bev Vincent.
0: Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We let off the show with a brief tribute to Peter Straub. Though we've asked you back to discuss Stephen King and your new book, Bev, you also knew Peter Straub. Before we get into the business at hand, can you tell us a little about getting to know him and some of the memorable encounters you had with a writer who is truly a gentleman and a scholar? I got to know Peter
2: um first in the 1990s when uh, the Usenet news groups were the the way people got to interact with each other uh, who were fans of a certain topic. And there were two groups in particular. There was Alt.Books.Peter Straub and Books at Stephen King where Peter was very active he was an early adopter of internet uh news groups. and uh through that i started emailing him a bit off list and um when he came to dallas which is about 3 hours away from me in uh let's say it would have been 1997 he had a book signing for the magic terrors collection um i went up to dallas for that and he invited me to join him at his hotel before the uh the signing events he always liked to have a couple of drinks before he did something in public. And, uh, we had dinner afterwards and it sort of became the beginning of a friendship. And I, I've met up with him many times over the years. Um, he was a regular attendee at NECON, uh, the Northeast uh, Horror Writers Convention that, uh, I, I've gone to many times. He was very approachable. Um, he was a big man, like physically large. Um, could be a little bit daunting looking. But uh, he was just friendly, cheerful, supportive, encouraging, um, the sort of guy who would do just about anything to help out uh, beginning writers. Um, he gave a blurb for uh, The Road to the Dark Tower. Um, he was just, a, in addition to being a terrific writer, um, just a great friend and a nice, friendly guy. And the tributes to him all over the internet for the past week are just a testament to how much... Other people's experiences with him were very similar to mine. I would say.
0: Thanks for sharing
2: that,
1: um, Bev. How did you first come to writing about Stephen King?
2: Well, that emerged out of what I was just talking about—the uh, the Usenet news groups. Um, a lot of people like to gather together to talk about King's work, and very often they would ask questions—you know, very specific questions about certain works. And I'm the sort of person who liked to answer questions. If I didn't know the answer, I'd look it up. And so I got to be sort of known as somebody who you know people get asked questions of. When um Richard Chizmar decided to relaunch Cemetery Dance magazine in 2001, he was aware, I guess, of my reputation on the news groups, and he asked if I would be willing to write a column for the magazine. And so for the past 21 years. I've been writing a column for every issue of Cemetery Dance, which we called News from the Dead Zone. It was essentially news and reviews and commentary about things going on in King's publishing world. And that's how it all started. When did you and King first meet? The first time was uh, 1987, 88 thereabouts. He came to Houston to do a signing tour with Don Robertson. Uh, King had published his book the ideal genuine man through philtrum press and he was touring to support that book it was the only thing he would sign he wouldn't sign any of his own works so it was it was truly in support of somebody else's uh, uh manuscript and so he was at the river oaks bookstore in houston i took a greyhound bus from college station it took me about an hour and a half each way to get there and back again um but so i had my Few minutes with him, just like everybody else did. So that's really the first time that I met him face to
0: face. And we saw that the tables were turned recently, and King actually interviewed you. What was that like? <laughs>
2: that was that was that was in the big thrill uh, newsletter from the International Thriller Writers, and they're a very supportive organization. And you know, whenever anybody has a book out, they do a lot to promote it. And so they were going to uh, do an article about my new book, and the um, managing editor had this idea. She said. Lee Child, um the per- a person who had written about Lee Child's work, um had a book coming out, and we had Lee Child interview, and it, it was really successful. So what do you think about getting King to interview you? I, was, I thought it was an interesting idea, but I was very nervous about asking, because I know how, how busy King is. I've interviewed him a few times over the years, and once we interviewed each other, when we did a, a telephone interview for the audiobook of Flight or Fright, but it was a big ask and I was, you know, sort of nervous, but I sent the email and he agreed to do it immediately. Um And so, yeah, that was cool. He, he asked some really, I didn't know what to expect that he was going to ask, but he asked him really interesting questions. And it gave me an opportunity to talk about some things that I don't necessarily discuss in other interviews at length. So, yeah, it was great. And it's, uh you know, for promotional purposes for the new book, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better. We even got a picture of him and me on the cover of the uh, magazine. So it was great.
1: Yeah, it's a great shot. The the, the book uh, we're celebrating, of course, is the book that's just being launched within the next week. It's uh, Stephen King, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. The new book is an updating and expansion of a previous book you published through Red Hill Press in 2009 entitled Stephen King, Illustrated Companion. Can you tell us a little bit about how A Complete Exploration came into being?
2: The previous book, uh, the Stephen King Illustrated Companion was commissioned by Barnes and Noble. They had, were doing a series of what they called Reader's Companions. They had done one on Poe and one on Jane Austen and they wanted to do one on King. So they, uh, enlisted the work of this uh, publisher called Becker and Meyer who published basically art books, anything that had a lot of photographs or heavy illustrations. And on the strength of my work with The Roads of the Dark Tower, they contacted me and asked if I would write that. Um, it was a compressed book. Uh They didn't want to cover everything. There was a limited page count. And so I was only able to address a handful, like eight or ten of King's books, which was a very small fraction. And we did one updated version, um, which in- included some of his more recent work. And so when I contacted them again last year to see if they wanted to do yet another update... I found out that Decker and Meyer had been bought by the Cordo Group, which is a big multinational publishing group. And they said, rather than doing uh, just, you know, a little addition to the end, let's do a complete expansion, which I just sort of said, yeah, this is absolutely great. And the the reason that we were able to sell the book internally at the publisher was with King's 75th birthday on September 21st. Well, this is the perfect time for a book like this. So. To my great joy, I was able to go back and address every book that King had written, rather than just a select few. Uh, they're not all done at the same depth uh, as uh, some of the others, but there were like there was parts of the early '90s that I didn't even mention at all in the previous book. Um, what books that I consider to be quite important, like Dolores Claiborne, Gerald's Game, Rose Matter, and so with the additional room, I was able to write a lot more about everything. Plus, there was some space to do things like, uh, there's a dive into, uh, Castle Rock, um, one into Dairy, uh, a whole bunch of sidebars that go off into some, you know, related, but interesting, to me at least, interesting topics.
0: Yeah, those interludes are really fabulous, and we'll get to some of those in a little bit. Um, I just wanted to say congrats uh, to you on the book, and this, you know, the design team for putting together such a wonderful looking book. Uh, can you talk about uh, sort of that process of creating the look of the book?
2: the um, The previous book was um, more rectangular, more like an eight and a half and eleven size big uh, format coffee table book. This one is more square. Uh, I was really surprised when I got my first copy by how heavy it is, it weighs over three pounds. Hmm. Um, so the first process is I write the text. Um, and so that finished up about October, November last year, by the time most of the edits were done. And then the book goes to layout. Uh, which I have no involvement in whatsoever except then they send it back to me and they say, we have pictures here and we have pictures there, but we don't have anything here. We need captions here and there. So I had to write all the captions. And then there were a lot of places where I had to go in and come up with suggestions for art. Um, sometimes it came from stock photography. Sometimes it came from the previous book. In one instance, um the the uh, artist rendering of Castle Rock, um, I knew somebody who had done something like that, so I got permission to to do that. So it was, um, I mean, they have an art group that really lays things, these things out. That's their bread and butter. They know how to do these things. As for what went into a certain place, sometimes they had suggestions that I overrode. Sometimes I had my own suggestions. It was, yeah, it was a fun project.
0: Well, let's dig into Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life, and influences. Um, so we start off with Chapter 1, The Future Artist as a Young Man, 1950 to 1969. And just to give um, those listeners out there who, um, you know, aren't that familiar with King, we thought we'd run down some of the pertinent points. Uh, King was born on September 21st, 1947. Uh, when King was two, his father, Donald, uh, left the family. His mother, Ruth, supported King's love of reading and writing. And when King was 12, he discovered his father's rejection letters. He had apparently been writing, and so there was, I guess, these rejection letters in his aunt's attic. And along with those, King found a number of pulp novels, including some by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, as an adopted kid myself, I've always been aware of other artists that I love who have come from somewhat broken families. There seem to be a number of parallels in the early lives of Stephen King and John Lennon. Both Lennon and King had fathers who abandoned them. Both became involved in printing satirical newspapers as adolescents. Uh, King had the village vomit and Lennon had the daily howl. Um, so we're wondering how, how the abandonment uh, might've affected um, uh King and do we know what became of of Donald King, his father?
2: Um, I'm not sure that we know specifically. There have been some rumors back and forth, uh, but essentially, I don't think King ever had any further contact with him uh, from the age of two on. So, you know, when King writes about father figures in his books, he can only write about that from his own perspective as a father. And you know, he became a father at a fairly young age. Uh, I think about twenty three or twenty two but he does- he didn't have a father figure in his life, but what he did have was a very strong mother um so that shows up i think uh in some of his work but uh yeah i mean it's you 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 sort of would think that maybe somebody who becomes really famous uh, if the father was uh out there that he would sort of try to reach back and maybe be, make contact again, but I don't believe that ever happened.
1: There was a moment in King's life where he gets that validation um, that we writers all cherish, this from his mother. Now, from your book, I'm just quoting, she told him he should be making up his own stories. Um, So when his mother told him to write his own stories, how did this impact King? And how important has the support of his wife, Tabitha, and his children been to King?
2: So when his mother told him that, the re- the reason she said that was because he had been adapting other things in his own words up to that point. He would take comic books and then he would basically write the whole story out in, in fictional form or he'd go see a movie and he'd come home and write the the mini novelization of that. And he got busted at school for selling some of these things. And, uh, you know, I think at that point, that's when his mother told him, you know, don't copy somebody else, start making up your own stories.
1: Mm.
2: In terms of, you know, his mother, um, knew that he had some success as a writer. He used to send her copies of the short stories that he had published in the, uh, the gentleman's magazines. He tells about how he used to black out the ads so she wouldn't see some <laughs> of the racier things that were on the sidebars. And she did get to know that he had sold Carrie and that he'd sold it for a considerable amount of money, although she died before it was published. Mm-hmm. Um, But now Tabitha has been his anchor all the way through. Um I mean, they met in college. They were both writers. Um, She was doing mostly poetry. He was doing poetry and short fiction. But, yeah, her support is... Something that, you know, it's hard to imagine where he would be today without any of that. There's the famous story about how she picked, you know, the first few pages of Carrie out of the trash and encouraged him to finish it. And not only encouraged him, told him that she would help him with the parts of the story that he was less comfortable with. And she's been his first reader, his... Perhaps his harshest critic, you know, he goes to her for feedback and she, uh, I think she tells him when there are things that don't work or she makes uh, crucial suggestions. Um, I know one famous one came with Bag of Bones where it was her that suggested that there be a pregnancy kit in his wife's belongings that she just purchased at the pharmacy when she dies. Um, which becomes a really, you know, fundamental part of that book. Um, she has argued with him about the titles of some of his books. Uh, he was going to call Dreamcatcher Cancer and she refused to, uh, refer to the book by that title. Uh, and eventually he saw the, the, the writing for that too. And, and she's a successful writer in her own, uh, mm. regard. You know, she has seven or eight novels. Um, and they come from a family of writers. They, mm used to tell each other stories all the time. That's just part of the the fiber of who they are. They'd sit around the table and make up stories. So, yeah, it's, it's all part of the environment that helps foster a good creative environment.
0: So in 1966, King attends the University of Maine. He receives mentorship from an English department, Professor Carol F. Terrell. We know that Sword in Darkness is a 150,000-word unpublished novel written in the late 60s by King, um, which is something that was something I think new to me. Um, have you had a look at the manuscript for Sword in Darkness at the Archives in Maine? Um,
2: I haven't. Um, there was a chapter, Rocky Wood published a chapter of it in one of his books, and it originally appeared in an Australian newspaper. But he has, Rocky Wood has a very detailed uh, synopsis, like a multi-page, chapter-by-chapter synopsis of what the book is about in his uh, Stephen King unpublished uh, book. So I have a fairly good idea of what it is about. Um, so, Carol left Terrell um, was one of the first readers of The Long Walk and encouraged him to perhaps write something that was more uh, contemporary, uh, you know, relevant to what was going on. And so, The Sword in Darkness is about race riots going on in the 60s, 70s era. Mm. Um, I doubt that anybody will ever really see the whole manuscript beyond, you know, a trip Mm. to the archives. Um, But it was, you know, it was a monumental early work.
0: So what other kind of uh, goodies are up there in the archives?
2: Well, the the other uh, goodie of note is so before he wrote uh, Getting It On, which became Rage, which he started when he was about 17, there was an earlier novel called The Aftermath. And it's a post-apocalyptic science fiction story. Not terribly long. Probably we would call it a novella these days. Sort of a first effort at you know doing a very long story, um, and so that is there. Um, there are all sorts of unpublished uh, short stories. some of them are complete, some of them are incomplete. There's a couple of collaborations, early collaborations with his sons. Um, there are screenplays that he's written that have either have been or have not been produced. Uh, one, for example, is the Shotgunners. Which was the early take on the regulators, which he was, wrote with an intention for Sam Peckinpah to do it as a western. And unfortunately, Peckinpah died, so that uh, never got off the ground. That one I have read um, completely. Um, there are early draft manuscripts of everything. Um, there are, you know, poems, uh, you know, video clips, it's everything you can imagine. And it used to be at the University of Maine um they closed that down and it's now at his house in broad on broadway street street in bangor oh nice um not yet open to the public because you know covid really put a kibosh on lots of things but i think they have digitized just about everything uh when i was working on this new book there were some uh items that we sent in a request for and they were able to turn around and send us back uh, pdf copies of those things pretty quickly
0: Excellent, and I guess no Arctic uh, Crate monsters hidden away up there.
2: They're not in the. There's no box listing them,
0: but I. <laughs> there's
2: some <laughs> boxes you might want to be careful about opening. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh,
1: you're right. There's probably nothing in there, but a bunch of rocks and plants that'll turn to dust if you touch them. But I'm um, pretty hot to see, just to say. I'm telling the truth, am my... I?
0: Doc,
1: it's loosening up. Uh, could you, um, oh. yeah.
0: Stephen King has already completed his first novel at that point, uh, The Long Walk, which is to appear later as a Richard Bachman book. Uh, Perhaps we can take a moment here to veer off into our own interlude. Uh, Let's talk a little about about uh, Richard Bachman. Over the years, King has published seven novels, I believe, under the pen name Richard Bachman. They are The Long Walk, Running Man, Rage, Blaze, Roadwork, Thinner, and The Regulators. And I won't feel like I'm missing something. But anyway, at one point, King wanted to release Misery as a Bachman book as well. Uh, can you break down for our listeners, Bev, why King opted to use a pseudonym for these titles?
2: Well, the, the first four, Uh, Long Walk, Running Man, Rage, and Roadwork were were novels that he tried to get published uh, as Stephen King in his early parts of his career, even before he published Carrie, and they were rejected for various reasons. Uh, Once he started getting some traction in the publishing world, making a name for himself, he wanted to dust these off and get them out into the world as well. Um, there was a belief at the time that there, there was a limit to how many things somebody should publish in a, in a year, that you could saturate the market if you publish too much. And so they floated the idea of uh, publishing them under a pen name. Um, and the, the they really wanted to see if they could build a new career for this Richard Bachman guy. And the first four books just sort of disappeared, you know, almost as quickly as they appeared. Um, Thinner was one which was written at the same time as King was writing some of his more famous books. So the style and uh, topical matter were much more in line with what he was publishing and had become famous for. And the publisher decided to put a real push behind that one. And it was the first of the books to come out in hardcover. And it did modestly well as a hardcover. Uh, under the Bachman name, but that was at the same time when a, a diligent person went into the uh, Library of Congress and tracked down the fact that Bachman was really king. And as soon as that news came out, then uh, the, the, the sell through of that book went from you know, like 13,000 copies to 130,000 copies in you know, a very, very short period of time.
0: And there's a, a hilarious story, too, that sounds like one of those moments from a film where somebody's making up a name and they sort of see something nearby, like a toaster or something, and they say, yeah, my name's <laughs> Phil Toaster. And where, where, wasn't he listening to uh, BTO, Bachman Turner, yes. Overdrive or something? And that became the impetus for the, for the last name?
2: Yeah, and he was reading uh, a novel by Richard Stark, which was a pen name for Donald Westlake. So that's where the Richard part comes from. He had another pen name in mind. Uh, he was going to be Guy Pillsbury, which was uh, a, a family name. His his uh, wife's uh, ancestors were Pillsbury's. It was actually like his father-in-law's name, I believe, or something like that. But the, uh, the name got busted in-house. So they had to come up with both a new name for the book and a new pen name on very short notice. Mm-hmm. And that's how Richard Bachman came about.
0: Oh, that's great. It's hilarious that the real name actually seemed more made up than, <laughs> than Bachman. Okay. Let's go back to the University of Maine in the late 1960s for a little bit. Um, there King publishes a number of shorts, short stories at the literary journal. Uh, is it Uberus, I believe. Uber. <laughs> yeah. And he meets his future wife, Tabitha. Um, and as you've touched on, um, she was doing some poetry, um, and King also is, uh, doing some poetry as well as his fiction. So the first time I became aware of King's poetry was in Skeleton Crew when the two, uh, pieces Paranoid a Chant and For Owen were included. And I can't tell you how liberating it felt to see that as somebody who, you know, I was messing around a little bit with short fiction, but there's always that idea with poetry that, well, you know, uh, you can't do that really, or you shouldn't, or I shouldn't try that. But seeing King do it felt like there was license all of a sudden. Um, so what I'm wondering is uh, we know that around this time, Robert Browning's poem, "Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, made a huge impression on King. Um, did you, Want to touch on this at all, Bev, the the earliest days of um, King's magnum opus and the connection to the poem?
2: Sure. I mean, poetry has always been really important to King. Um, I'm not going to sit here and claim that he's a great poet, and he would agree, I think. Um, But he studied a lot of poetry in college. And if you've read interviews with him or read his books at any length, you'll see how often poetry shows up. There are characters who are poets like Guard in The Tommyknockers. Characters are always reeling off snippets of poetry, and King does this himself in interviews. He seems to have it sort of at the top of his mind quite often. Um, Child Roll into the Dark Tower came. He read uh, in one of his uh, classes in university, and there's something mystical about the poem. He admits that he doesn't have a clue exactly what it's about, but he was inspired by it. And he began working on um, the first book of the Dark Tower series, uh, a book called The Gunslinger, um, shortly after he graduated from university. And he was steeped in not only that poem, but also Lord of the Rings, which, you know, we all know these days, but was really, really big back in the 60s and 70s. If you were in college, everybody read The Lord of the Rings. And also... He was an avid uh, moviegoer, and so all of the big uh, Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns, those were the three things that, you know, he assimilated and sort of made his own out of to create the story about somebody named Roland who is trying to find the mysterious dark tower, and... The interesting thing in the uh, the gunslinger is in, in its first incarnation, we don't really find Roland's name out until you know at least a third of the way into the uh, into the book, and we have no idea really why he's after this dark tower, except we have a notion that it's somehow rather degenerating and that the world is degenerating because of this and you know poetry I think has influenced him in many other ways throughout his career, but most notably in the gunslinger.
0: This is something that I picked up when I found out that uh, Robert Browning's poem was written on January 2nd, 1852. And that breaks down to 121852. And those numbers add up to 19. And those will come into play later. But, uh, of course, you know, like the character in N, my mind was kind of blown away. I was like, Oh my God, it's all 19. It's all 19. Um, but we will get into 19 a little bit later, probably.
1: Bev, you mentioned in chapter one of your book, um, by the time Carrie appeared, King had been writing for nearly 20 years and had been a published author for a decade. Uh, I want to thank you, for for dispelling the, the myth that some people may have, uh, that the novel Carry sprouted full-grown from the mouth of Stephen King.
2: And not only had he been writing for that long, uh, the, the first draft manuscript of Kerry that his editor Bill Thompson uh, was working on ended in a much different and much more fantastical way. I mean, Kerry grows horns and becomes this huge creature that storms through town. I mean, Thompson had a lot to do with having King go back and Reconsider the ending to make it something less, uh, far out, I guess, and something, you know, it's, there's, there's incredible and then there's wildly incredible. But yeah, I mean, he had been, uh, certainly, I mean, by the time Kerry was published, he probably had seven novels under his belt. Um, yeah, so it definitely wasn't his first. It was just the first one that made it to publishing and into the hands of the readers.
1: Yeah, because people just don't get that people have been working at writing for a long time before they get their break and King is no exception. Um, one other question I wanted to ask uh, from chapter one of your uh, book is you have this short description of what the book is about, which I think is perfect. So early on in this book, you say this book published on the occasion of Stephen King's 75th birthday captures many of the events that inspired his works using his novels as a lens through which to observe his life. So I was just thinking that I, want, well, I wanted to let you know that your use of language, the brevity, clarity, the conciseness made this book a pleasure to read. It seems that you may have taken the teachings in On Writing to heart beyond just your own journey as a writer.
2: Oh, thank you. I mean, On Writing is certainly uh, an influential book for a lot of writers. Um but yes, uh, that quote in particular. When you're writing what we might call a cover copy, you're really forced to choose every word carefully, and you try to make major impact with as few words as possible.
0: Alrighty, so we're going to continue on to Chapter Two: The Double Day Years, the 1970s. Um, so Tabby and Steve are married in 1971. Uh, they're struggling financially to get along. He has a teaching gig at Hampton Academy, but the job uh really bites into his writing time. Around this time, he writes The Running Man, another Bachman book. Does it in a week or less, which is just staggering. Um And this brings us back to a future Bachman book. So, um Bev, can you let us know which of the Bachman books is your favorite and why?
2: I would say The Long Walk is... It's a fascinating um, creation, especially given the age at which he wrote it. Um, it's, you know, the, the just the, the fundamental concept of a hundred kids walking until there's only one left. You know, if you fall below a certain walking pace, you're just wiped off the place of the earth. But the promise of something fantastic at the end is worth it to try to, you know, risk your life knowing that the odds Well, they're not as bad as a lottery, but they're still pretty bad, given the um, consequences of losing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Am I to understand that that is actually being developed currently?
2: Well, different people have had their hands on it. Um, uh, Frank Darabont had the rights to it for a while. I think somebody else, I think there's a Swedish director who has the rights to it, but many uh, are optioned. A few are produced, uh, I would say, as a general rule of thumb for King adaptations.
0: Okay. Well, we've touched on sort of the beginning, the creation of Carrie. Um, And we know that at this point, the kings were so destitute, they had to cancel their phone service, which meant that when the book was picked up, Bill Thompson, his editor, to be at Doubleday, had to telegraph him the good news. Um, And he says within the telegraph that, or telegram, that uh, the future lies ahead. And as you mentioned before, uh, um, Carrie's published, Ruth King passes away, although she did know the book was in the works. Um, and then we have, uh, Salem's Lot, originally Second Coming, uh, or, or that was the original working title for it. It was never called that. The original working title is Second Coming for Salem's Lot. It's released in 1975 and it becomes King's first bestseller. With just two novels released, we get some of the staples of King's universe. We get a telekinetic adolescent and the broad canvas of a New England town and its inhabitants. Um, it's 74, the Kings move to Colorado, apparently on a whim. Steve and Tabby visit the Stanley Hotel, um, it, which is uh, in Estes Park outside of Boulder. As it's closing for the season, they are the only inhabitants, uh, or diners, I guess. Did they actually stay there? They did. Yep. Yeah, they did. And a story is born, originally entitled uh, Dark Shine, then The Shine, and finally The Shining. And when it's released in 77, it becomes King's first hardcover bestseller. Have you been to the Stanley Hotel, Bev? I have. Yeah? And what can you tell us about it? I haven't stayed
2: there. Um, I was in Boulder on business and I got up very early in the morning because I had to be, uh, at a customer site at nine or 10 in the morning. So I got up at the crack of dawn and made the drive up to, uh, Estes Park. Um, but the first thing that strikes you about it is that, um, as seen in the remake of The Shining, the, the miniseries, it looks like it's in isolation when it's actually perched on the hill in the middle of a, you know, a small, uh, city. Mm. Uh, it looks, I mean, the, the miniseries was filmed on the ground. So if you've, and inside. So if you've seen the miniseries, you have a pretty good idea of what it, it looks like. It's, um, uh, you know, inside very heavily wooded, uh, I mean, gleaming wood. Um, they make a lot about their connection to the shining. Um, there, there are menus which have interesting king, uh, inspired, uh, drinks and, uh, <laughs> and meals. Um, there was a time at least when, uh, they had the, uh, the Kubrick movie playing on a closed loop in every hotel room. Oh, nice. I think they even had a, uh, an outdoor screening that was sponsored by Netflix. Uh, they put it on a big screen outside and, uh, showed the movie for a Halloween event or something like that.
0: Is there a topiary? There is not. Oh, okay. Continuing with uh, your book, in 1978, both Night Shift and The Stand are released, uh, and that would be a pretty rewarding career for most writers. The Stand continues to define King's universe in an era of a pandemic known as Captain Trips. On page 46 of your book, there is an aside which you call Captain Trip, where you say, quote, fans complained they felt like they were stuck in one of the novels during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Care to comment on that? Well, there was a time when uh, people, you know, on the
2: news groups and on other places used to say, every time they read the stand, they found themselves coming down with the sniffles and flu-like symptoms, just out of sympathy for what was going on in the, uh, in the book. Um, And uh, you know, the, the, the miniseries was remade and, you know, released or, you know, coincidentally, just around the time of the, the, the pandemic starting up again. So I don't know if that was the pandemic was good publicity for the, uh, for the miniseries or vice versa. But, uh, you know, anytime, I mean, there's so many things in in King's books that have become part of the common consciousness. You know, anytime there's a, a mad dog, it, you know, he's called Cujo or, you know, just all of these, you know, scary, uh, clowns, they're all just sort of touch marks on contemporary culture. And so naturally, when there's a pandemic, people are going to be thinking
1: about, uh, Captain Trips in the stand. Um, continuing with the stand. Um, where good people must stand together and be true in the face of Randall Flagg, the dark man, the walking dude, and his corrupt forces. Can you tell us how important the theme of ordinary good and not-so-good people making a stand against evil as a recurring theme in Stephen King's books?
2: One of the things I was considering yesterday when I was thinking about this is that the uh evil in... Sometimes evil in King's books is like really supernatural, evil, um, you know, things like vampires and things like that. But often the evil in his books is corrupt individuals who aren't necessarily terribly good at what they're doing. And I think of like Big Jim Rennie and Under the Dome. And... Uh, Randall Flagg is another one in that camp. Though He's got supernatural powers. At the end of the day, he's not really all that good at what he does. Uh, no. Flagg the Magician never quite managed to pull off what he tried to do in the eyes of the dragon. Um, he does you know, monumental harm to the world in The Stand, um, but ultimately doesn't quite get where he wants to be. Um, his fate in the Dark Tower is legendary. But, you know, people banding together to take on evil is, you know, one of the tropes. It's like a, a hero's journey kind of concept. Mm-hmm. There's something bad out there and you have to gang together to do it. Even if you want to take it to an extreme, something like Stand By Me is a bunch of kids getting together to go out and face death. You know, not death for them, but just the concept of death to see it and witness it for the first time. And so, yeah, that's I think it's common in in fiction in general, not just in King.
0: Regarding the Stan King has spelled it out for us, I guess, uh, evil is powerful, but stupid and mundane. Evil has no power of its own, just the power people give it. Um, on page 61 of your book, Bev, you have an aside called The Corrupting Power of Religion. I immediately think of, is it Mrs. Carmody from uh, The Mist? Um, this m- might be impossible, but can you briefly talk about the importance of religion in the Stephen King universe?
2: Well, in, in recent years, um, a book called Revival is another um, exploration of religion. And in that book, um, there's a minister who comes to a small town uh, where the main character is growing up. And the minister undergoes a profound loss of faith as a result of an accident involving his family. And that spurs him to go looking beyond his religion for a greater powerful meaning of life. And what he ends up discovering is, in the concept of this book at least, what's really going on out there in the universe beyond our life and it isn't nice at all. And it certainly isn't something that anybody should be praying to. Uh, King grew up uh, in a fairly religious environment. Um There are pictures of him in the pulpit, uh, you know, leading church services. Um, He has explored um, people's relationship with God in other books like Desperation, where there's a young boy who apparently has the hotline to God and can converse directly with him. Again, it's one of these high concepts that people, when we think about, you know, what is there, you know, what is out there, but also... He understands that, you know, religion can be good for some, but taken to extremes, it can be um, harmful to others. And we see that in characters like uh, Carrie's mother, um, Johnny's mother, um, Mrs. Carmody, like you say, people who try to browbeat other people into their religion.
0: Thanks, Beth. Um, In 1979, uh The Dead Zone is released uh, and I want to again remind listeners that they should check out the episode we did with Bev on The Dead Zone uh, in 2021. It's season one, episode seven, so we won't get too into it right here. They can always refer back to that. But before the decade wraps up, the first two adaptations of King's works are released. We get Brian De Palma's Carrie and Tobe Hooper's Made for TV, Salem's Lot, and both are iconic productions that had a huge impact on their viewing audience um, audiences. Do you have, uh, do you remember your first viewings of those projects, Bev?
2: Not specifically. I grew up in a small community. We only had uh, at first one and later two TV stations. Um, and they certainly didn't play anything that was beyond PG. And I didn't really get to see movies that much. Uh, until I went to university, so 79, 80. And in 82, with the dawn of uh, VCRs and uh video cassettes of movies, I sort of went binging on uh horror movies that I'd never had a chance to see up to that point, so probably Carrie and Salem's Lot were part of that. I also used Dance Macabre as my uh wish list of things to watch, because King has mm. his list of uh, films at the back and uh one of my friends and i we just sort of tore through the i don't know if it was blockbuster it was probably some local homegrown video store in those days um to catch up on you know the george romero films and every other slasher or horror movie that uh, we'd never gotten to see before
0: yeah it always amazes me that those two films you know that are a new writer was able to have these these like excellent adaptations out there and so immediately when you think of King, you know, you're thinking of him as a writer, but also somebody who ends up with these film adaptations. Um, It just seemed like from the get go, he was ready to have like an impact on the culture. Mm-hmm. We wrap up the 1970s and chapter two of Stephen King, a complete exploration with an interlude in Castle Rock, Maine, one of King's prominent fictional towns. Castle Rock is mentioned in eight King novels and eleven short stories. And Bev, thank you for doing the uh, the research for me on that on those numbers. Castle Rock even has its own eponymous television series. At one point, it was all but obliterated by Ace Merrill, the villain we first met in the Body or Stand by Me, if you know the film. Uh, tell us, Bev, if you were forced to relocate to the American Northeast and your only options were Castle Rock, Maine and Derry, Maine, which would it be and why?
2: Um, There was a time when it wouldn't have been as easy a choice, but now I would say Castle Rock because in in recent years, King has renovated Castle Rock and it's quite a trendy little place now. It's got a, <laughs> a vegetarian Mexican restaurant and it's got the turkey trot race that brings in people from all over and you know, the strange stuff still happens there, but the difference between the two is strange things happen in Castle Rock occasionally. Mm. Derry is just fundamentally evil. The people there are mean. Um, there is an undercurrent of evil that just exists in it, and we even see that in the the most recent uh, of the Gwendy books where uh, one of the characters goes to visit to track down something that happened there, and you just see that the people there are just... They're they're hard to get along with or uncooperative or you feel like they must have had just the most miserable lives and they just take it out and everybody else. So, yeah, Castle Rock. The interesting thing about Castle Rock, though, is one of my goals with this book was I was going to gather together every mention of Castle Rock everywhere and all of the books and short stories. And I was going to make a map of the town. Oh, nice. But to my Sad discovery was it just can't be done because there are so many inconsistencies that it just doesn't make any sense.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, is it a little easier with Derry? I, th- I feel like I've seen a map of Derry. Yeah, um,
2: Derry is easier because Derry is Bangor-ish. Right. Uh, it overlays Bangor. There are some differences, like the barons aren't from Bangor, but so when King wants to go back to Derry, all he has to think is Bangor, and so he can you know keep things a little bit more consistent. Whereas Castle Rock exists completely in King's head. And he sort of tinkers with it and does things to it from book to book and story to story as needed.
1: Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Bev Vincent as we celebrate Stephen King's 75th birthday and the release of Bev's new book, Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life and influences.
0: So that was just amazing speaking with Bev. Uh, Was
1: there anything that really grabbed you from part one, David? Well, being a poet and someone who's been reading and writing poetry for a very long time, for me, it was just how much of an influence that poetry had Mm -hmm. on the young Stephen King. I mean, even had one of his poems had a quote from uh, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and of course, A Dark Man and uh, and so on. There's just so much connection with poetry, The Child, Roland, and so on, that it was even more than I knew of before. And it was great reading Bev's book and talking to him about the influence of poetry. So that's my big takeaway.
0: Yeah. I, and I find every time that I either read Bev or speak with him, I come out learning something new, which is... Kind of remarkable, because I've been a King fan for 40-plus years. Uh, so, yeah, it's just amazing. He's truly a font of knowledge. For me, uh, when we were discussing King's early childhood stabs at writing, uh, I found it interesting how he used to rewrite existing works until his mom said, you know, well, you should write your own stuff. But the fact that he was rewriting existing works, it reminded me of how... um like an, a visual artist, they'll often begin uh, learning their craft by tracing. And new musicians will learn cover songs before they begin writing their own songs. It's those early baby steps that help you find your voice as an artist. And um yeah, that's sort of like was something uh, that I took away.
1: Yeah, Troy. And that's something, you know, the whole artistic thing, the fact that he worked with Peter Straub, who we mentioned, of course, has passed away just within a week of us recording it and how when they did each other's, they were trying to write alternate chapters mm. in the other person's voice. And then they eventually put it all together. And then they, after the whole process, couldn't even remember who wrote which part. So I th- found that also fascinating. In episode two, we will talk to Bev about the golden age of King in the 1980s and 90s and get into books like it. At Cemetery and Misery, as well as film adaptations such as The Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, and The Green Mile.
0: You're not gonna wanna miss it. Please remember to catch us on all of our socials. And your favorite podcast provider. And we are now available on Spotify. So look there. But you can also go to the the origin of it all, the website at 2OF.ca. That's numeric2. Um, we're on Twitter. We are at two old farts sci-fi with a numeric two and Facebook. Uh Always been there, and I guess we always will be. It's Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. Please join in the conversation. Uh, Like, subscribe, tell a friend.
1: Yeah, in our Facebook group, the two is actually T-W-O. So don't look for the number Mm -hmm. two. Don't look for T-O-O. Don't look for T-O or any other modification of two. It is T-W-O, Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts.
0: Talk sci-fi.